Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, back with another episode of the SPR podcast. I'm laughing because this is the third time I've recorded this. I've got a couple of guys in the studio with me. Give them the shout out, guys. They were a lot more enthusiastic. They were a lot more enthusiastic to the uh, the first time they did it. <laughs> All right, we got Gav, our beautiful videographer. Thank you, mate. I love you. I know, I know. And Phil, the man, man. Phil, the man, man, who is in the studio recording four four new courses for the uh, for the course library over at Scott's Base Essons. But anyway, let me tell you about this week's episode. We've got the awesome Scott Reader with us now. Scott's career is absolutely unbelievable, and it all started when he joined. How do I pronounce this, guys? Caius in the early 90s, a band with whom Scott, alongside guitarist Joss Holm, would would help define the desert rock scene with albums like Blues for the Red Sun and Welcome to the Valley. Now, when the band split, Scott began playing with Tool, absolutely epic, obviously, um, before Justin Chancellor took over for um, bass duties full-time. And you'll also have seen him, you've got to check out this video if you haven't already, auditioning for the Metallica documentary, right? Some kind of monster. Um, Check that out on YouTube if you haven't already. And you'll also have seen him um, in the studio with Slipknot's Corey Taylor, Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, and Dave Grohl for the Grammy-winning soundtrack Sound City. So he's he's been all over. Now he's back on the road with Fireball Ministry, following their recent album, Remember the Story, and been busy running his own studio too. So it's going to be a really, really great episode, this guys, and we talk about all the stuff that he's done in the past, all the stuff that he's currently got going on. I've absolutely loved this episode. And I also need to just give a shout out as well to let you guys know that we had a few technical issues connecting with Scott in his studio. So this episode is audio audio only. So if you're expecting a video, we're on audio only this week. Now, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Nick and this week's guest, Scott Reader. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast here with Scott Reader. Hey Scott, how's it going? Good, no complaints here. Good. Oh, good um, over there? Yeah, I think so. Hanging in. Got a bit of flu going on. So apologies if yep. I'm, I'm coughing yep. over this. Um, we'll, we'll edit that out. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, loads to catch up on. But I wanted to just start with the very beginning. I remember talking to you before where it all started. You, you wanted to be Ringo Starr. Is that right? Yeah, I started playing drums when I was four. And I started playing drums in bands in high school, some punk bands. And uh, our bass player quit. And we couldn't find another bass player that was into punk rock. So I ended up buying his bass for 100 bucks, And we got Alfredo Hernandez to play drums. So he eventually ended up in Caius. Uh, we played together in a couple bands before that. And then he ended up in Queens of the Stone Age. But he was actually the first drummer that I played bass with. Um, and Mario Lolly was the guitar player who's in Fatso Jetson now. And, um, that's, those were the beginnings. Um, that, that whole scene and that whole that whole area where you're in seems to have such identity into doing yeah, the, geographically as well yeah i mean it's crazy how the desert scene has taken off um since we were kids back then you know we were traveling to la going to punk shows mm-hmm. um one of the first shows i saw was black flag actually right uh, my my first three concerts were cheap trick um then rush on the moving pictures tour and my third show was Black Flag, and that just blew everything out. Um, I think I was more impressed with the bass player at the Black Flag show than anything. Um, just the energy was so cathartic, I guess. 
I, I think that was when I was switching from from drums to bass, and Chuck Dukowski just had that that energy that it, it looked like he was exercising demons when he played, and 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 I wanted to experience that, and I try to hold on to that to this day. Every time I play a show, yeah, I'm getting a little older now, so it, it wears me down. But uh, but I, I still have to have that fire, or else I'd quit. You know, right. I get that totally, especially now you're running your own studio now, right? And doing more engineering yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the studio right now. It's a freaking mess right now. Um, had the band in here for rehearsals and uh, recording and stuff. It's just, it's in shambles right now. But Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Do you find that kind of that message about emphasizing the importance of the performance rather than the purity of tone and things like that is still hard to get across? <laughs> Yeah, to me, the the energy, whether it be recording or playing live, the the energy and the interaction between the the band members, that's the most important thing. You could have the worst tone, you could have the crappiest recording, but when everybody's on fire and you feel that energy, whether you're watching a band or, or listening to a record, to me, that's the most important thing. Okay, going back to when you were just mentioning going, making the trip into LA to see all these punk bands. Yeah. Um, I think you guys with Caius were probably the first kind of, of that desert rock scene to make some real headway. What do you remember about that time? Um, I was playing out in LA in a band called The Obsessed right. at the time, which was more like doom metal. Even though I'd come out of the punk scene, you know, I ended up playing with Wino and... They started out in D.C. And, and they had like this crossover thing with the punk scene as well. They, they were playing with bands. Um, I think they were playing with Minor Threat and maybe Bad Brains. Uh, there was like this mutual appreciation where they, you know there was this crossover. And um, Caius put out Wretch. And I didn't care for the record, but I thought it was cool that somebody from the desert was actually getting out and doing something. And then they put out – well, they, they hadn't put out Blues for the Red Sun yet, but I got an advanced copy of it. And I was like, oh. Can it's I cuss on this? Great album. Yeah, sure, man. Yeah. And I was like, holy, this, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and we ended up doing a tour together <coughs> on the West Coast. Um, a friend of mine, Garth, introduced me with, with Brant. And uh, we, we did a West Coast tour together. It was the Obsessed, Caius, and there was this band, Wool, that I produced back in those days. And I did live sound for it. It was um, Pete and Franz from Scream. And it was right after Dave Grohl had left and joined Nirvana. Mm -hmm. um, so these three amazing bands that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> and sometimes we were playing to each other and the bartender and the sound man. And that was it. Um, there were some really good shows on that trip, too. But, um, yeah, it was a little frustrating. It's like, ah, people should be here. Uh, right after that, um, there was a van ride home from Seattle where we ended up and I jumped in the van with the Caius guys and Nick, the bass player from Caius jumped in the van with the obsessed guys. And I don't think we were an hour out of Seattle and they hit me up. They said, man, things aren't working out. Can you join Caius? And at that point, the, uh, the obsessed was about to sign with Columbia records and I politely declined, but they called me about three months later and said, hey, we, we've kicked out Nick. We've got a few shows coming up, including the record release party for Blues for the Red Sun. Um, there was a show with Body Count during the whole Cop Killer. That, that was crazy. 
um, can you just fill in for a few shows while we look for a bass player? And I went to one rehearsal, um, and it was so fun. Those guys were probably, I think they were 19 years old at the time, and they were just on fire. They, they were serious, and, and uh, it just felt really good. And that was it. Um, I went back to L.A., jammed the Obsessed because we had some shows coming up, and Wino asked me, so what's going on? I said, eh, it was fun. What are you going to do? Like, I'm, I'm going to join Caius. That was it. And uh, moved back to the desert. I don't know. It, just part of the timeline. Yeah. Uh, but it's so crazy how things have taken off. I mean, with with the whole desert scene, Queens of the Stone Age, after we broke up, they, they started doing their thing. Um, then I was in the Metallica movie with the bass auditions and Tool covered a Kaya song. And, and so after we broke up, it got bigger than ever. I wish all those people were there when we were playing, you know, but I'm really happy for Josh. He's carried the torch for the scene and, and really blown it up, you know, massively. Yeah. But it's kind of cool how all your paths kind of cross eventually and they've all, it's all kind yeah. of come back around. I think that's a, yeah. that's a cool thing. Yeah. I, I just had breakfast with Josh that weekend of the Cal jam thing and just reminiscing about old times and, talking about stuff coming up and man it's just it's so crazy he's playing madison square garden in new york and headlining the forum in los angeles it's like holy shit man it's crazy what is it like when you catch up again it must you know you, you've known each other so long and you've come yeah, back a long way since it's yeah, kind of surreal it, yeah, it's, it's all good it's just you know just catching up old friend you hadn't seen in a long time we probably hadn't seen each other face to face in a couple of years so it's just like, ah, <laughs> and to be playing this great party. I mean, the Cal Jam thing was such a blast. Foo Fighters, Queens of the Stone Age. Um, it, it was an honor to play that show. And even though I hurt my feet real bad, <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I was, I was telling you, I, I, that <laughs> stage is just roasting hot. I, I literally had blisters on the bottom of my feet after playing that show. So afterwards i kind of hid out in the dressing room for a bit and I, I got to see my family and some friends and uh, that was about it some ice <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just remind us why you how the barefoot thing started oh when caius was opening for metallica in 93 in australia they had that snake pit stage that went out to a point they had people in the middle of that pit when they played but it was empty for us and the scaffold kind of dropped down. I played barefoot the first night, and their production guy, um, Jake, was freaking out that I was going to get electrocuted. So I reluctantly wore shoes the next night. And with my hair in my face, I can't see where I'm going. Usually I can feel with my feet where I'm going. And my leg went between the, the two levels of scaffolding on that stage, and I did a full-on face plant. I think it was in the middle of um, Freedom Run, Kaya's song. And... 15,000 people and trying to nonchalantly get up like, yeah, I meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew my bass was all out of tune. I just walked back, grabbed another bass, plugged it in and kept going. But yeah, I vowed never to wear shoes after that. It's messed up. Back to Caius. We yep. got to talk about Sky Valley in that album, which was your first album with the band, right? Yeah. 
What can you remember about that that set, that whole time that session? Um, at Sound City, right? Yeah, God, everything happened so fast. Um, after I joined the band, Blues for the Red Sun came out. We did a real crappy tour through the states. A lot of sports bars and stuff, playing next to cardboard cutouts of football players, <laughs> and. Um, then we, we got a call out of the blue that Glenn Danzig wanted us to go out on tour. So we, we were on the road with Danzig and White Zombie. And that was amazing. That was our first really pro tour, you know. And right after that, we went out with Faith No More on the Angel Dust tour. And thought we were done. We were going to get ready to do the next album, which became Sky Valley. And that was when we got the call from Metallica. And those guys didn't have passports. I'd already been to Germany a few times with the obsessed um, somehow they got their passports within a week we did our laundry packed up and went to australia and, and played arena rock shows with metallica it was unbelievable and right after that we went into the studio for sky valley at sound city um i remember really there was a lot of fussing over tone that was driving me crazy because I just like to go, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I was brought up as an engineer in a, a jingle house with ad clients sitting behind you and everything had to be so fast. And I was working with great musicians. My first engineering session was, um, uh, Vinnie Colyuta playing wow. drums and Abe Laboreal playing bass. Cool. That was my my trial by fire engineering. And it was so easy. Those guys sounded great. But anyway, we're fussing over tones for three days. And I I saw all these pedals that Josh had lined up. I, I said, were you using all those pedals last time? And he said, oh, no, no. I said, well, we'll try unplugging all those. He said, well, they're all in bypass. And we finally unplugged everything and, and got a cleaner signal going in. And it totally matched the guitar tone from blues for the red sun. And luckily they didn't fuss over the bass tone too much. Cause obviously I wasn't going to match what was there before. Um, but I had my 1970 SVT that, well, usually it's sitting right there, but it's packed up in a warehouse right now, ready to go on the road. I have the bass up there though. Is it the Rickenbacker? You had that? Yeah. Can you see it up there? Oh yeah. In the corner. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a wall art piece now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so once we were set, we had a bunch of friends come in. We put candles all over the studio, and everybody smoked out. And we knocked out probably three fourths of the record that night, just blasting through everything live. And oh man, I, I have some of those basically like a board tape of just the live tracks and that band was on fire you know there might have been a couple of guitar overdubs added to that stuff but there were no bass overdubs no drum fixes it was just all live the band was on fire and so you knew right away that we're onto something here yeah yeah i mean the, the energy in that room was incredible um I don't know if I've ever felt anything like that. Um, it felt pretty special. Um, Why do you think that was? Do you think, do you think it was just 
I mean, it was your first time in the studio with the guys, or, or was it was that a part of it, or was it just the timing of the whole thing? Yeah, I think I was really excited. I totally overplayed. <laughs> Look at me! <laughs> yeah, that was my first time recording with those guys, and and uh, I was trying to add everything I could, and um, I didn't realize there was tension between Josh and Brant at that point. Mm-hmm. They were keeping that kind of away from me, I think. Because I just quit a great band to play with these guys. Right. So I don't think they, they really wanted me to be aware of what was going on. And, um, yeah, I remember as soon as we were done tracking, Brant quit. We, we played a generator party before we'd mixed. And he showed up and he'd cut his hair. And, you know, he used to have these huge dreads. And he cut all his hair off. And we played this generator party out in the middle of the desert. And I think it was the next day we got a call from the manager saying that Brant had notified her that he quit. Right. Wow. So um, we got this guy, Pete Moffat from Wool, to finish the drum tracks on a couple of songs. Um, he used to play in Government Issue from D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and mixed it. and And then... We had everything ready to go. The artwork was done. And um, then the record label fell apart. I forget the whole thing. We were signed to Dolly Records, which was a subsidiary of Chameleon Records, which was a subsidiary of Elektra Records. Um, And then we got a notification from Elektra that they wanted to keep us. But so much time had passed contractually that we weren't obligated to it. So we had to renegotiate everything. It was a freaking mess. Um, but finally got all the legal stuff sorted out and the record finally came out, I think in 94 and we found a new drummer in Alfredo, who was the first drummer I ever played with in my old punk bands did issue across the river. And, and, uh, so it it was perfect for me. We we had half of my band across the river, half of Caius coming together and, and, um, we really gelled. I mean, when we were on the road six months out of the year, just the, the the energy came together and that, that was the tightest we were ever. And we got to go to Europe so many times and Scandinavia and England and um, toured the States a few times. Uh, oh man, it, it was just getting good. Um, we did the, the fourth record, uh, Circus Leaves Town, and we were touring for that. And, and, and all of a sudden it was over. I, I don't really know to this day what happened. Uh, I got called into a meeting with John and Josh real early on a Saturday and they were just shaking their heads and they said, we can't do this anymore. So yeah, man, <laughs> tough one. Yeah. <laughs> I want to give you a hug. <laughs> so where did you go from there? I mean, did you feel kind of optimistic about the future or was it? No, I, I was I was bummed for a year. I, I right. didn't really do anything for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife gave me this pair of chameleons that somebody sold her, and they were totally sick, and, and we had a doctor look at them, and they got all these injections, and I nursed them back to health. And that was my therapy for a year, right. taking care of these chameleons. They were my friends. Um, and then somehow I fell into the – 
Nebula thing. I, I played with Nebula for a few shows um, with Eddie Glass and Ruben from Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. And then the Unita thing happened. Um, I stayed friends with John Garcia from Caius over the years, and, and uh, they needed a bass player. So we ended up signing with Rick Rubin's label, spent months in Sound City tracking, and we finally got everything mixed by Jim Scott. The producer was George Draculius. We had Joe Barisi Engineering, um, who worked on all the Kaya stuff. Um, everything was ready to go. And Rick Rubin's label, um, it was American Recordings, which was part of Columbia. And... I guess his contract expired and, and he moved to Island Def Jam and Island Def Jam didn't give a damn about our rock record. Uh, um, I forget who was on their roster. Their, their rock roster was, I think George Lynch and some 41 Right. and we got shelved. So they, they said you can either take the masters or we'll give you a chunk of money. And I, I wanted to keep the masters so we could move to another label and the other guys wanted the money. Um, I think that was the biggest mistake ever taking the money. Um, that, that was it for me. Um, God, what happens life after that? You mentioned sound city there. You've obviously been quite involved with that, that place. Especially yeah. I, I remember you did the, uh, the, the recent one a few years ago now, the Dave Grohl. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I recorded three full albums there. Right. And how special is that place? I thought it was the greatest place in the world. I mean, some of the people in the movie are like, "Oh, it's the dingiest right. crap hole." You know, to me, that was hallowed ground. I mean, you walk down the hallway to get back to the studio, and you're passing platinum records on both sides. First, you see this huge plaque of Nirvana, you know, with all these platinum CDs. Um, you're looking at Cheap Trick, Tom Petty, um, Fleetwood Mac. So many classic records were recorded there. Um, so yeah, I'm asleep one night and I try not to turn off my phone, but somebody texted me at 1.30 and I look at my phone. It's Dave Grohl. Huh. And he said that uh, he bought the console from Sound City and he's making a documentary about it. Do you want to play on the soundtrack? And I just texted back, fuck yeah. <laughs> and he's all cool. I'll, I'll send you the details in the morning. Next morning, I have this polished demo of the song. And he told me it was going to be Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, Corey Taylor from Slipknot. Dave Grohl playing drums and me playing bass. And it, I had to pinch myself to make sure I woke up, you know. Uh, I sat out there feeding the horses and, and watering while listening to the song and on my phone trying to picture what kind of a part I could add to that because it sounded great already. The, the scratch bass was fine. But I tried to come up with a line that was a little more, I want to say, symphonic like a counterpoint against what was going on to add some more melody to it. And, and, uh, I was just crossing my fingers that this thing that I thought up was going to fly. So within a week I was in the studio and I was the last piece to put on. They'd already done all the guitars with Rick and all the vocals. So I was hearing the, the vocals for the first time and I was so worried that my lines were going to step on the vocals and I was going to have to just completely change my approach. And Butch Vig loved it. Um, 
I took in my old SVT from Sky Valley, plugged that in, and they loved the tone right off the bat. And, and uh, they had, I realized they had cameras hidden all over the room. And uh, then they had one right in front of me when I was playing on the, the bonus features. They, they have like the making of the song and they have close ups of my, my fingers. And you can see my hand trembling. <laughs> Just, uh, it, it was high pressure, but, you know, Butch was really good uh, at being encouraging, but pushing the hell out of you at the same time. Uh, I, I was really impressed with, with how he worked. And the the whole analog thing was exciting too. Um, I hadn't recorded analog <coughs> for a long time, for many years, and um, I had to smoke Dave Grohl's bass track. They didn't have any tracks left, and I'm all, ah, can't you back it up into Pro Tools first? Nah, f- that Dave's all, you're gonna be better than mine. Uh, oh, wow, that's cool. And I got to see him playing drums for one of the tracks. And you know, you if you try to redo a part, you can't get back to what you just did. And he did a full drum take, and then there was one huge drum fill that he wanted to redo. And everybody's like, "Oh, are you sure, man? That was really good." And he's like, "No, no, no, just just try it." You know, and. And everybody's like, oh, that was perfect. He's like, no, no, I, I got a better one. And everybody's going, no, no, no. <laughs> and uh, it, it was, I keep saying, it, it was like watching uh, Sean White do snowboard tricks and, and, and you know, almost sticking it, ah, oh, one more time. And he finally stuck it. And it was like, yes. It was exciting, you know. It was such an adrenaline rush going to tape. Yeah. How, how good is Dave at drums? I know everybody knows knows him now as a frontman of Foo Fighters, but you forget yeah. you forget the history he has with Nirvana. And, and... Yeah, I, I think he's he's one of the top ever all time. I mean, people are going to argue Keith Moon or I love Chuck Biscuits myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Grohl is right there at the top. Uh, he's amazing. Um, I, I have. A Grammy hanging on my wall from that experience, man. It's that that song went to number one on radio, and God, it's just—it it still seems too good to be true. Thanks to that guy. Sure. And um, speaking about your bass playing there, about coming up with a more <laughs> symphonic part, I was listening to one of the tracks on the new Fireball Ministry album. Yep. Um, let me find which one it was. Let me go out. Um, okay, back to, back on Earth. Yes. And the bass playing really, I mean, it sounds so strong to start with. And it's such a big sound. But then you, you're playing kind of eighth notes, then you break off into something that almost like reminded me of like an old Motown kind of part. Awesome, awesome, thank you. It's cool, but it's completely unexpected. <laughs> I was like, wow, where's, where's he going with this? <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. I mean... It was so weird making this record. This is the first time that I've made a record um, almost via email. Um, we worked on a few songs together, and then uh, the, the drummer, John, has this huge warehouse full of drum gear. He has a cartridge company. And so they recorded drums along with a scratch guitar part on a lot of the stuff. And then they would just email me tracks that I could work on. 
And when they were all done over there, they would come over to my place because I've got all the bass gear here and, and it was easier to bring a, a rig over here to record. Um, so yeah, that song, there's just guitar parts, like chords hanging. Bling, dun, dun. And it was wide open. And so I went for it. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to fly or not. And yeah. Uh, they ended up loving it. Sounds great. Thank you. That, that's my favorite one. Yeah, it sounds killer. Um, so you tell most of it, I was kind of hanging back. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't have that same um, obnoxiousness like I did on Sky Valley, where listen to me. You know, <laughs> so, you know, most of it, I'm I'm pretty laid back. But, but yeah, that one was really fun. So, what's your take on that band, and how did you get involved? They've got quite Fireball? a history of, of bass players already, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Everybody moves on and becomes really famous. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you're next. laughs> um, yeah, so how did that come about? From the Sound City thing, actually. Okay. Um, Jim Rhoda, the, the guitar player singer from my band, he was a co-producer on the Sound City film and on the Sonic Highways Foo Fighters series on HBO. And uh, I don't know if it was that day that we were filming, but um, I think Jim called me shortly after that and, and said, you know, we're working on this new song. We don't have a bass player. Uh, you want to try recording something with us? Yeah, why not? So it was probably, what, four years or five years ago. Yeah. It just came up on my Facebook on this day, just like <laughs> two days ago. Um, went in the studio and recorded this one song, and it came out great. And and uh, they asked me if I wanted to play live with them at some point. Uh, yeah, it'll be fun. And at least a year went by. Didn't hear from them. All of a sudden, I get this call. Uh, Motorhead invited them to go on the Motorhead Cruise, mm -hmm. the, the first one. Um, I think it was in 2014. So, yeah, a few rehearsals, get on a boat with Motorhead and all these bands, Testament, Down. Um, it, it just on a cruise ship in the Caribbean for three or four days. Hell yeah. <laughs> so that was it. You know, we did the, the Motorhead cruise, and, and so I'm the bass player now. And yeah, we've we've played a few shows here or there. We we headlined a festival in Tucson. Uh, played at the Viper Room a bunch of times. We haven't really like hit the road. Everybody's been real busy, and and now that we have this record, you know things are picking up. We're leaving with uh, Red Fang um, next week. I think on Thursday, <coughs> Wednesday or Thursday, we start with Red Fang. Mm -hmm. Go out for a little bit and. Yeah, and there's a bunch of stuff in the works. I think we're going to do a East Coast tour pretty soon. And uh, yeah, there's stuff coming up next month, and uh, talk of some festivals in Europe, and and uh, so I don't know, I'm just kind of rolling with it. it sounds good. It's going to be a yeah, it's going to be a busy year. Yeah. Um, your bass on the album, as I said, sounds amazing, man. It sounds so strong. What's your um, what are you using on that? Is it your Warwick? Um, yeah, it's, it's all Warwick. Mm -hmm. I used all three of them. I've, I've got a katana four string. I've got a thumb four string that's sitting right here. I, the 
katana's right there. I don't know if you can see that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and they've got the, the new Chrome 8-string. 8-string thing. Tell and us about it, that, man. Cause it's... I, I used that on um, Weaver's Dawn on the record. Mm-hmm. And you don't really perceive it as an 8-string bass on that song because it's pretty fast. But the tone is so thick. You know, it's got the octave strings. And, and um, I'm going to try to incorporate, incorporate that more into the set. It was tuned up to E during the recording of that song. Um, but I figured out how I can use a capo on a four-string bass for that song, and that'll open me up to tune that thing back down to C-sharp. I was going to say, so it's quite high for you, isn't it? Yeah. It was it, <laughs> uh, it, really hard. After right. all these years, I mean, Kai's tuned down to C. I played in Goat Snake for a little bit. I think we tuned down to A. Um, I had funny. to use a five-string set for that tuned... I think it was still tuned down a little bit. Yeah, the beat down to the A. So everything I've always done is pretty squirrely. I use medium gauge strings on the on the Fireball Ministry stuff and the Kai stuff, tuned that far down, so you can just bend the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I know a lot of bands they use heavier gauge strings, but you can't bend them and they go dead so fast when you do try to bend them. So yeah, the, the medium gauge works really good. Sounds Dean Markley, Dean Markley has been there for me. I just got a batch of strings for the eight string mm-hmm. from Dean Markley. It's kind of tricky to buy strings for that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I got a deal with, with Dean Markley. Oh man. I saw a 32 string bass at NAM. I'm like, man, I hope that guy has a string endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, man, I wish you all the best with the uh, with the new album and the tour and stuff. Thank you. Um, album sounds great, guys. Go and check it out. Um, Thank you, Scott. Just any words of wisdom before we sign off? Looking back over your career, anything you would have done differently, or anything you're you glad that happened that was kind of pivotal for you? For you? Um, I don't know. I'm I'm just. I haven't really had a game plan. Mm-hmm. I've just kind of gone wherever the wind takes me and it's worked out. You know, if I would have had this rigid plan to get from point A to point B, I think it would have just been failure after failure. And, and uh, I'm pretty happy where I am. I'm not the biggest star in the world, but it's nice to be part of the base community and part of the Warwick family and get to meet people like you and, and get to play out once in a while, you know? Well, Scott, man, best of luck with the new album. I think you've done some great stuff over the years and yeah, you're, you're the best man. I love your stuff. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. Obviously, we'll be back next week, as always, with another awesome podcast for you. Um, Until then, go and check us out over at scottsbassessons.com if you've not been over there yet and check out what we're doing. It is the ultimate online bass school. We've had over 25,000 students through our doors in the last three or four four years, three years. Well, you know, we've had a lot of students through the doors. and. The what, more, yeah, obviously more because Phil joined. Yeah, Phil's in the faculty. That's when, that's when the tidal wave of students came, Phil. <laughs> so get yourself over to scottspacesessons.com, grab your free trial and get in on what we're doing. Otherwise, otherwise, other than that, take it easy and I'll see you in the shed. Mm-hmm.